This is the third of three messages in the run-up to Easter as we consider various aspects of the crucifixion of our Saviour as we find it recorded in the Gospel records of Mark and Luke and John. And so this morning from John chapter 19, three further lessons from his account of the death of the Lord Jesus. Towards the end of his retelling of the story, uh, did you notice that John, and not for the only time, engages with his readers at verse 35 to tell us the whole purpose of his writing? He's speaking of himself as an eyewitness. He who has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. It's more than just a story. It's the eternal God intervening in human history as the Word made flesh in order that he might ransom and redeem and rescue dying, lost, condemned sinners. Like all the Bible's human authors, like the Bible's divine author, John is not writing merely to inform or entertain or explain. The Scriptures are given not just that we may know about God, but to actually know Him, to be in relationship with Him, having been reconciled to Him through this Lord Jesus Christ. That's what John wants you to believe. Have you believed? Have you believed not simply these facts, but that all of this was done for sinners like you, that you may know him, love him, and be joined to him, not just now, but for all eternity. Well, let's look at three final lessons in this little series that we've been doing. The first thing we're going to notice is remarkable compassion in the midst of his agonies. Now last week we noted the outstanding loving kindness of Jesus as he was able to pray to God the Father for the forgiveness of those who were committing against him this great wickedness and cruelty, even though, of course, it was exactly what God had planned, even though it was why Jesus came, but he was able to pray for their forgiveness. And John records another outstanding display of compassion at verse 25, as from the cross, he makes sure that his mother, Mary, will be loved and cared for and provided for once he's gone. Of course, Jesus knows that he will rise again, but he'll only be with them for a few short weeks. There is such compassion in Jesus that even in the midst of the awful agonies that he's enduring, agonies of body, and particularly 
the agony of soul that Christ is going through, he still is moved but by the sight of his mother Mary standing there with these other women and with at least one of the disciples. These women who had such great love and faithfulness towards their Saviour. Quite a few of the men had run away, you know. These women put them to shame. Sometimes it can be true in churches that it's the women who are more godly and faithful than the men. Well, men, it's up to you not to let that be the case. Now, no one is going to ask the women to be less godly or less faithful so that they don't shame you. You must make sure that you are stand, stepping up to the mark. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting for a moment that women should be less godly and less faithful than the men. Uh, there isn't some spiritual hierarchy here where the men ought to be higher than the women spiritually. Not at all. We're all one in Christ. And you women, you press on in the faith. But men, if this is you lagging behind when God has appointed you to be the spiritual head in your home, well, that's a responsibility that you need to settle before the Lord. These faithful, faithful women with Mary at the foot of the cross. Well, Joseph was almost certainly dead by the time that Jesus began his three years of ministry. And as the firstborn in the family, as far as society was concerned, the responsibility for her welfare rests upon his shoulders as the eldest son in the home. And the one who perfectly fulfilled every part of the law without sin is not going to fall at the last fence. The scriptures require that in every possible way we must honour our parents. And here, almost with his last breath, Jesus fulfills that commandment and honours his mother and is full of compassion towards her. Widows like Mary could easily become destitute, uh, were easily uh, made vulnerable. But Jesus makes sure that that can never happen to her. And we read of the disciple whom he loved. And if you, if you don't know, uh, this disciple who Jesus loved is in fact the author of the gospel. It is John, the brother of James. So humble is he, he never names himself. And instead he uses this phrase for himself, the disciple who Jesus loved, when he's referring to himself. And I'm sure John's not suggesting that Jesus loved him more than he loved any of the other disciples. I think what he is revealing 
is that of all the things that he has learned about Jesus, the standout feature is this. He loves me. Jesus loves me. The love of Christ is without peer. The love of Christ is beyond compare. I sometimes wonder about John as he was writing down this account of the crucifixion. And as in the middle of it, he spells out these words, the disciple whom he loved. Now I'm sure as he wrote his gospel down, He understood much more than he did back then when those events first occurred. Surely it must have gone through John's mind in a fresh way as he's recording these events. Jesus was on that cross because he loves me. Surely that must have gripped him as he's recording these things. It must have, shouldn't it? I wonder, has it gripped you? Would you say, along with the hymn writer, give me a sight, O Saviour, of your wondrous love for me, of the love that brought you down to earth to die at Calvary? Was it the nails, O Saviour, which bound you to that tree? No, it was your everlasting love, your love for me, for me. And Jesus loves Mary. And he provides for her as he commits her into John's care for the rest of her earthly life. And we read that John takes her into his own home from that very day. What untold crushing pain and anguish Mary is enduring as she looks on at these events. That sword that would pierce her soul that Simeon had spoken of in the temple 33 years ago, could she have known just how deep it would pierce? But she's met with matchless tenderness and sympathy. What an encouragement this is for us to see such thought and care in the heart of Christ. Will he not surely care for you also? You'll notice Jesus doesn't actually refer to her as his mother, woman, which might sound a little harsh, uh, but I'm assured that the word that he used was actually a very respectful way of referring to Mary in a way that perhaps you or I might use the word madam to speak respectfully to a lady. But why not mother? Well, it's been suggested by some that Jesus is pressing home the truth that Mary's relationship to Jesus as the one the one who carried him in her womb, the one who delivered him into this world, That is actually a very small thing when compared to her need of him as Lord and Saviour. 
just as it is for anyone else. Contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church teach, Mary was a sinner in need of a saviour as much as anyone else. And ultimately, her relationship to Christ through the rest of eternity will not be as blessed mother, Virgin Mary, mother of God, Our Lady, star of the sea, queen of heaven, cause of our joy, or any other title you may hear attached to her. No, Mary's relationship with Christ for the rest of eternity will be exactly the same as yours and mine if you're a Christian believer and all who are part of that heavenly throng. A humble believer, a sinner saved by grace, casting down her golden crown at the feet of Christ and worshipping the Lamb once slain, who is the only mediator between sinful men and women and a holy God. She won't be worshipping Jesus in heaven because he is her firstborn son. She'll be worshipping him because he's the wonderful saviour who loved me. And in the meantime, in this life, she'll know and enjoy all the blessings and privileges and provision and care which Christ has for all who are his. And yet, of course, within that, we also rely upon the love and care of earthly family because that actually is God's appointed way for how we are to live together amongst one another. And Jesus makes sure she has a family who will go on loving her, weeping with her when she weeps, rejoicing with her when she rejoices, appreciating her, respecting her, caring for her. What compassion is found in Jesus Christ? Why would anyone ever choose to reject him? Secondly, we see very clearly, as we've seen already, but we will pick up this point with John this morning. Jesus died that the scripture should be fulfilled, the point we've just been making with the children. Listen to some of the things that we read in that 19th chapter of John. They said therefore among themselves, let's not tear his tunic, let's cast lots for it. Whose it shall be? And then John adds, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Did they know that's why they were doing it? They hadn't a clue. But God so orders all things. Verse 36, these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After this, verse 28, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled. This is Jesus 
that the scripture might be fulfilled. Said, I thirst. He's given the vessel of sour wine. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowed his head and gave up his own spirit. Some of you will recall how the Apostle Paul, in his short summary of the gospel at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, makes a point including the phrase, according to the Scriptures. And it must surely be of great importance that both he and the apostles who record their records of Christ's death provide this constant qualification according to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures. It must be of huge significance that it is said so many times. We dare not simply read it and skip over it as if it it means nothing to us. There are very many Old Testament prophecies regarding the promised Messiah. A few can seem a little obscure. The majority are abundantly clear. Some of them refer to his physical heritage as a descendant of Abraham and of the tribe of Judah. Some refer to the wonder of his person, the place of authority that he has, and they confirm the eternal nature of his reign as the promised descendant of David. So you have in Isaiah 9, unto us a son is born, unto us this child has been given. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Can you think of any earthly ruler who you can say that of? Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it, establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Some prophecies speak of the saving, atoning work which Jesus would accomplish. The best and most obvious example being the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Other prophecies provide very specific details about his life and death. That he would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. Of their escape into Egypt. His ministry in Galilee. Teaching in parables. So many things. And there's being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah chapter 11. His humiliating treatment by the Roman soldiers. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6. And yes, even riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in Zechariah 9.9. And then these things which, which John specifically refers to at verse 24, taking us to the Psalm of the Cross, Psalm 22, which is a vivid depiction of Christ's crucifixion. And that's the Psalm which begins with these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 36 is the fulfilment of Psalm 34, verse 20. Verse 37 is the completion of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. 
everything that unfolded in the life of Christ was precisely as it had been planned out by God in eternity past. When the promise was given in Genesis chapter 3 that a descendant of Eve would bruise Satan's head, all that we read of concerning Jesus in the Gospels, and which is further than explained by the Apostles, all of it had been planned in the eternal decree of God. And so much of it, incredibly detailed and accurate, unique pieces of information that are being given throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, so that the writers in the New Testament have no problem in recognising these things in the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Because details about his burial and resurrection are found in the Old Testament as well. And they have no hesitation at all in quoting the Scriptures and saying, look, this, as they point to the Old Testament, this is fulfilled in Jesus. And this, and this, and this, and so the long list goes on. If you're a Christian who thinks that the Old Testament is just an old, dusty relic in the first half of your Bible, something of little value, well, these truths and principles that are brought out in these accounts force you to think again about the Old Testament. One of the main reasons that you can have any confidence in the saving work of Christ in the Gospel is because of the Old Testament. If Jesus had just appeared out of nowhere, who knows? Who knows about any of the claims that he makes? Who knows about any of these details in his life? They're just random things. But we have the Scripture. And over and over again, it is written, it is written, just as the Scriptures say. The Old Testament foretells and verifies who Jesus is and why he came and what he accomplished. You must love your Old Testament every bit as much as you love the New. And most significantly, verse 28 tells us that Jesus, it's almost as if he's been li living his life ticking off all of these prophecies. All of these things, he's absolutely certain that every prophecy which concerns him up to the point of his death has now been fulfilled. Or at least it will be as they offer him the sour wine to drink as foretold in verse 21 of Psalm 69. Once done, Jesus knows that's it. All is done. Nothing in God's salvation plan has been left undone. It is finished. And then, as I've mentioned previously in this little series, Jesus expires his own life. He gives up his spirit 
He does that in obedience to his Father. He does that for those who the Father has given him. When they come to Christ to break his legs, to quicken death, because death on the cross was primarily through asphyxiation. And if you've got your legs broken, you can't hoist yourself up so that you can breathe. The, your weight hanging on your arms means you simply cannot breathe. Breaking the legs hastens that, that awful, awful form of death. But when they come to Christ, he's already died because he himself has given up his life for his sheep. And all, all, as God has foretold in the Scriptures, there is no doubt whatsoever about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's conclude with this great declaration that Jesus makes thirdly. Jesus declared that his atoning work truly is finished. There are a variety of words that you might use if someone asked you to sum up the gospel in just one word. Well, we've got the open airs coming up at the weekend. Imagine someone did that. Sum up the gospel in one word. What word would you use? Is it even possible? Well, in many ways, we would say, no, it's, the gospel is such... A, such a fantastic, amazing thing, it's impossible to sum up the gospel in a single word. If I were really forced to, here's the word I use, completed. Completed. Completeness. I was reading an article a few weeks ago about the problems that some people were having uh, with newly built houses. Supposedly, the building work was finished. Supposedly, the house was complete. But a quick glance from a distance, so it seemed. Barry's got a very wry smile on his face. He knows all about this. Not that he does it, he's seen it. He goes in and fixes them. But you get up closer and you start looking in a bit more detail and in no time at all, all kinds of glaring faults and defects are to be found. And people were writing in this article even about intentional deception, fake air vents that didn't vent any air whatsoever ducting that disappeared into the loft and didn't lead to anything. Levels of workmanship, even I could do better, and that's saying something. Their houses were far from finished, but that had been the claim. What about Christ's claim? It is finished. Is it? Now that's a really important question, isn't it? This is a huge question. Is it finished? How do we know? 
Well, you go back into your Old Testament, you see, and you start ticking off the prophecies. It's done. It's done. It's done. It's done. All of those things in one life? All of those things in one man? Yes. It's finished. It's done. Turn to any other religion, turn to any form of philosophy. It will tell you, much to the liking of your proud heart, that you have it within you to make it and achieve it. Whatever your goal, whatever it is that you've set yourself, you can do it. And our celebrity-obsessed world will roll out in front of you those who apparently are the highest achievers, who've done it all. But then, too many times, people are left overwhelmed by bewildered confusion and in grief as these who apparently have done it all go to an early grave and sadly too often and tragically by their own hands through self-abuse and self-neglect. Only the other week the world was pouring out its tributes to the drummer of a rock band who died at the age of 50. Sadly, not untypical of the world he lived in, he died alone in a hotel room in a foreign country. Not quite so prominent, not quite so much lauded, uh, not quite so much trumpeted from the rooftops was the fact that at the autopsy they found ten substances in his blood that ought not to have been there. His life, perhaps, not quite so complete as everyone thought it was. That's the tragedy of the world we live in without Christ and without God. Those who follow a religious pathway to attainment they're typically left with no sense of assurance whatsoever. Where will they stand before God when they die? Well, who can know for certain? What will happen to you after you, are, what, after you have died? Can you be sure what the next life will bring? Can you know that you've done enough? Well, who can know any of those things? And cutting through all of this, comes the cry of one who hangs upon a cross. One who said that to believe on him is to have abundant and everlasting life. One who said that to feed and drink of him is to never again hunger or thirst in your soul. One who said that he's gone into heaven now to prepare a place for you for all of eternity if you trust in him. One who said that to know his love is to never be separated from his love. One who told the dying man alongside him that he would be in paradise today with Christ. To this lost and hopeless world comes the cry that you and I need to hear more than anything else. 
It is finished. It is done. It is complete. You may stand before God, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Why? Because it's all been done, made complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why on earth would you say no to this completeness which Christ has secured for you? Because that's the thing about this gospel. That's the thing about this Savior. Completeness. It's all been done. All is prepared for lost sinners to return. To turn from your sin to turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be welcomed home. Hallelujah. What a Savior.